I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. song so much i almost played the whole thing that is the music of the saints which features my guest today on the program ed cooper let me tell you a little bit about ed cooper ed cooper was born in 1955 that was the same year that pocket transistor radios became available the first atomically generated power was used in the united states james dean was killed in a car crash and west germany joined nato Speaking of West Germany, that's where Ed Cooper was born, in a city called Bremen. About 37 miles south of the Weser River, Bremen is an economic and cultural city that has a long list of beautiful historic galleries and museums, as well as being the home of the Hachez Chocolate Company and a four-time champion football team. Not a bad place to grow up, except Ed Cooper didn't grow up there. As a young boy, his family moved 10,000 miles away from Bremen to Australia, where they settled in a city called Brisbane. One of the oldest cities on the continent, Brisbane is often referred to as the cultural capital of Australia. It's a city of inventive architecture made of timber and iron, towering skyscrapers, St. John's Cathedral, the South Bank Parklands, and the Go-Between Bridge. Was that bridge named after the legendary band The Go-Betweens? Yes, it was. But that's a story for another podcast. Now, I mentioned the advent of the pocket transistor radio a little bit earlier, and there's a reason why. Think of that invention as the iPod of the late 50s. It meant that suddenly, music could travel with you wherever you went. I know, I know, that doesn't sound like a very big deal now, but at the time, trust me, it was revolutionary. The sounds coming out of that radio made the 13-year-old Ed Cooper want nothing more than to be in a band. And so, he went straight to work. Whenever a teenager is transfixed by rock and roll, this usually means they shut their bedroom door and they play guitar for hours on end. And to be fair, Cooper did do his share of that. But his real focus was on composition rather than just playing scales. So, by the time Cooper recruited his high school chums to form the band Kid Galahad and the Eternals, he had developed a complex understanding of songwriting composition. Kid Galahad fell somewhere between Little Richard and the MC5, and by the end of 1973, they ditched that name and renamed themselves The Saints. 
In spite of that holy-sounding name, the Saints rippled with dark menace. Cooper was an aggressive player, and his jagged and blazing leads were the perfect counterpoint to singer Chris Bailey's lippy snarl. Their live shows were singular and frenetic, often ending in arrests and utter mayhem. The Saints were wild, feral, and radiating an understated charisma. They self-released their debut single, I'm Stranded, and though it didn't catch fire in Australia, it sure did in the UK, with EMI offering the band a three-record deal. Then things went into a kind of turbo overdrive. In 1976, they opened for ACDC, then they relocated to Sydney, then they put out their debut album, I'm Stranded, and then they noticed that the Australian press wasn't noticing them, so they moved to the UK. In the UK, EMI wanted to turn the Saints into punk rock caricatures. But because the Saints could care less about commercialism, they refused to play ball. In 1978, they put out their sophomore album, Eternally Yours. How punk rock was it? Well, it was filled with scorching R&B, searing soul, and an entire brass section. In other words, very punk rock. Eternally Yours was a commercial disaster, but... By today's standards, it's considered an absolute classic. Record number three was 1979's Prehistoric Sounds, and that record was even more confusing. It's jazzy, bluesy, dark, brooding, brassy, soulful, and totally strange. Again, a commercial failure. But 40 years later, it's kind of a masterpiece. The Saints put out three brilliant albums in under three years, but... By 1978, Cooper and Bailey's relationship had soured. Their relationship with EMI hadn't fared any better. And by 1979, the band had been dropped, everyone pretty much quit, and Bailey was the only saint left standing. So there's the story of the classic years of the saints. They were fast, they were loud, and they were short-lived. But their impact was massive. Sir Bob Geldof once said, Rock music in the 70s was changed by three bands, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, and the Saints. In 2007, the Saints were inducted into the Australia Recording Industry Association Hall of Fame. And not only that, I'm Stranded was one of the first 20 songs stored on the National Film and Sound Archive's Sounds of Australia registry. After the Saints called it a day, Cooper flirted with the idea of quitting music altogether, but thankfully... That didn't last. Teaming up with former school chums, he formed the Laughing Clowns. Now, they were kind of like the Saints, but exactly the opposite. Cooper was a true musical intellectual, and the Laughing Clowns were post-punk, avant-jazz, soul-deconstructionalists. Kind of like if John Zorn fronted Mission of Burma. It was dense, it was free-form, it was experimental, and it was awesome. The Laughing Clowns hung around from 1979 to 1984. They put out three great albums, and then they called it a day. At that point, Cooper rejoined the Resurrected Saints, and he started touring with them. But he and Bailey butted heads in the familiar way they did, and he left the band once again. Cooper then embarked on what would be a critically acclaimed solo career. Fluctuating between postmodern guitar-driven alternative rock and horn-infused pop, Cooper's solo work amounts to one hell of a winning catalog. In 1991, along with Kent Steedman of the Celibate Rifles, Cooper formed The Aints, a grungy outfit who put out three albums in quick succession. After Cooper tabled The Aints, he resumed his solo career. 
In 2001, he joined the original lineup of the Saints for a one-off Hall of Fame performance. That happened again in 2007, and then in 2009, the band played I'm Stranded in its entirety. 2010 saw Cooper and Bailey play shows as a duo in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. That was very cool, but unlikely to ever happen again. Things are, well, let's just say frosty between the two men. I'll let Cooper explain. But in the meantime, let's get back to the Aints. And why are we getting back to the Aints? Well, it's pretty simple. It's because the Aints are back. The reconvened band now have an exclamation point at the end of their name, and their new record, The Church of Simultaneous Existence, is an album whose origins go back to 1969, when Ed Cooper was in high school. Remember how I told you he was fascinated with composition? Well, these songs are culled from musical elements that Cooper wrote when he was just a teenager. Cooper's early craftsmanship is fused here with his idiosyncratic and dazzling guitar playing. And from the horny swagger of Red Aces to the spry pop of Winter's Way, this is one of the year's very best albums. Look, the Saints are one of my all-time favorite bands, and I've wanted to talk to Ed Cooper for a really long time. And it was worth the wait. He was genial, he was thoughtful, and open to talk about pretty much anything. It's a great chat, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So, here's my conversation with Ed Cooper of The Aints, The Saints, and The Laughing Clowns. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. You know, I'm a writer, and I don't want anyone to see what I wrote when I was 13, but if they were going to, there would be a lot of editing uh, on my end. So there must have been a moment for you looking at this material where you realized, you know, there was stuff to take in and there was stuff to leave out. Um, that's a, that's a, a good point, because one of the one of the things that I think stopped me from doing something with some of these songs in the first place was feeling that they didn't quite stand up with the passing of time. Oddly enough, I became less critical about the whole thing. A couple of years ago, I, I was sort of starting to think that wanted to put together a whole range of um, old bits and pieces that I'd sort of written from when I was very young. And I, I was just going to be really sentimental and really forgiving and just, you know, just, just kind of orchestrate the whole thing. And so I was already in a in a state of mind that this stuff is what it is. Um, that said, I mean a lot of a lot of the 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 lyrics of the very very early things I, I just cut entirely. They just became instrumental passages. Um, <clears throat> in the case of a few songs, they just needed completion. Um, as far as the musical components, they were basically basically what they were. They didn't here and there. I, I kind of added things that possibly um, I wouldn't have thought of at the time that I did with the benefit of hindsight. Say, for instance, in a song like "You've Got the Answer," the piano part to that is kind of a the song is a mid 70s song. 
the piano part is definitely a Laughing Clowns-inspired piano part. Um, so there's a little bit of, uh, you know, in the arrangements, there's there's a, you know, I wanted it to to be true to the era in which they were written, um, but also, you know, not not to the not to the point of sort of letting good ideas that could have happened at the time escape. Now, the fact that it took 40 years or so to go back to these, does that suggest Mm. that that kind of editorial forgiveness that you have now, maybe you wouldn't have had 20 years ago? Is that something that you just sort of... Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I I, I think I I had to sort of just look at it in the, the... from from the perspective of just you know this this stuff i i'd written some of this stuff as a as, as a 12 or 13 year old and so how am i going to judge this you know um and i thought that musically i didn't actually need to change that much but the the arrangements have been developed that melodically and and the the sort of general you know, musical, the compositional part of it, they are what they are. Well, it does suggest that as a 13-year-old, you were awfully far along in your musical abilities. I I don't know. I think, I think I, it was was sort of the only thing that I wanted to do. I I, I wanted to learn to play the guitar, not, not to become a guitarist as such. I just wanted to be writing songs. I wanted to be a band, you know. It says a lot about your filing system too that you still have those that you have those bits at the ready. I mean, I, I can't find anything I did when I was thirteen. Yeah, the, the thing is that with with songs, and if if the if the melody is sort of vaguely catchy, it's sort of the, the really early stuff just stayed stayed with me always. Well, what, once I started to write a lot more, and as time developed, there's, there are probably things from five years ago. That I have to refer to either notes or tapes to remember, whereas things that I did in nineteen sixty nine I can actually probably still you know hum hum to you over the phone kind of thing, which I won't do of course but, um, <laughs> you're welcome to yeah. uh, do, so do you uh, do you have a slush pile like in your head of, of stuff that has sort of started that you want to get to? Um, you must have a, a tremendous uh, sense of recall too. Um, it gets better the more you do it. Um, there were there were things that I'd forgotten that uh, sort of people. Because when I started talking about this this idea to people that I'd known a long time, they had their own recollections, which would then sort of spark uh, a memory. A song like Elevator. I had completely forgotten about until somebody reminded me that the guy that was the Laughing Clowns drummer, Jeffrey Wagner, was at one stage going to be the uh, singer for the Saints. And I'd forgotten about that because it was an idea that we had for about two weeks. And um, But when that came up, I just immediately remembered the song that I'd written for Jeffrey after he didn't get the gig kind of thing. And... Um, so you know, yeah. I mean, there's there's, there's a as I, as I say, as time goes on, and there's more stuff that you have to remember. 
it becomes more important to sort of have a, a good filing system. My filing system is pretty chaotic, and I also uh, have gone through a couple of stages where I've just thrown everything out. So, you know, piles of notebooks, which I find uh, now that I've, you know, I look back on wanting to actually access all this stuff, I kind of regret being that um, petulant or emotional about the uh, stuff. It would have been good just to you know, put it put it in a box somewhere. But anyway. Well, I mean, I know that, you know, I remember reading when I got into Kafka, I remember reading that Kafka had burned uh, a lot of his work, which is why there isn't a lot of his stuff. He only has, you know, a couple of yeah. books, but he, he burned a lot of it. Um, do you under but you do understand that artistic impulse to, to do that yeah yeah I, I i i mean luckily i don't do it that much um but occasionally i sort of get into a particular particularly sort of bleak state of mind i suppose and i, I do just throw things out but melodies are, are sort of you know they're hard to throw out when you were a kid, what was your what was your your daily practice routine like? Were you one of those guys that could sit in your room for hours with a guitar? Were you pretty diligent? Um, I never really practiced the guitar so much as uh, I guess practiced writing. I, I think that was sort of what I what I wanted to do. I just wanted to wanted to write songs. I, I the concept of being a good guitarist was sort of a bit alien to me. I wanted to work out <clears throat> how to how to play and form chords that were very full so that what I could do by myself would come close to uh um, you know, sounding like a record. I wasn't sort of particularly sort of conversant with the way a recording was put together. So because I was not working with other musicians, I wanted the, the guitar to kind of be the be the whole thing in a lot of ways. So I, I suppose I worked on it in that way. But as far as sort of practicing scales and doing that sort of thing, no, I always found that really boring. <laughs> It's amazing to me that you that you began with a sort of uh, a diligence with composition rather than application. Yeah, well, to me, the the the, the, the sort of the goal, the the aspiration was to sort of somehow create what I was hearing on on the radio, or you know, the songs that I liked on the radio, not just anything on the radio, but you know, or a record, you know, that to me, it was a magical and fairly mysterious sort of um, world. And it was just, a, you know, I wasn't being formally taught or anything. It was sort of just going going through the, the process um, by myself and, you know, probably making lots of uh, decisions which actually slowed things down. Had I, you know, had somebody maybe offering a few good pointers, some of that could have been shortcutted. On the other hand, it might have, um, you know, uh, sent me down some dead ends as well. Those first three Saints records, I mean, 
do those really resemble what you were hearing on the radio or are they were they just sort of like a oh no 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 i mean i i, I think what 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 i what I was sort of referring to was when I was much younger i mean by the time that the sense started i was I was seventeen or eighteen, and by then it was sort of you know my intention was to have a sound and a band, and we had a band. You know, and the thing was to have a sound that was our own. I don't think we ever sort of felt um, that, you know, we, we were reinventing music or anything like that, but it was sort of like this is our own little territory within the bigger world of uh, rock and roll. Um, but no, we weren't. I, I don't think I, I, I can honestly say that there wasn't anything like the sense on the radio, not in Brisbane anyway. Did you change in terms of uh, when you started really getting into playing you know, actual application? Did you become a guy who practiced a lot? From time to time, yeah. Like, uh, I think by the time... Um, by the time I became a professional musician, you know, because before that, with the Saints, I was working... Um, so you'd have, uh, you know, I guess just limited time in between band rehearsals, writing songs, and just also just relaxing, I suppose. Um, but when when the band moved to the UK in '77, and suddenly, you know, there'd be weeks where we wouldn't be touring, wouldn't be recording kind of gave me quite a lot of spare time. And I did actually start to sort of <clears throat> look at um, broadening my musical knowledge, I suppose, uh, looking at other styles of music and seeing what I could kind of uh, cherry pick from, from those sort of things and sort of incorporate them. Was there ever a moment in your life where you thought, oh, I should... I should think about an exit strategy. I should I should go become a lawyer. <laughs> did you did you ever think in, in terms of like you know the profession has reached the point where maybe uh, I should I should you know look into something else or did you commit yourself fully to the artistic life with no doubts? Uh, no, no, I've, I've I've given it up many times. Um, I, uh, not not quite going into law. I mean, when when the <laughs> when the saints came to an end. Um, I mean, my son does law, but um, no, I, I was never that that canny. Um, it, I'd, I'd, at one stage, I wanted to, when the Saints finished, I, I, I actually seriously considered opening, returning to Brisbane and opening a, a second-hand sort of antique bookshop. I, I was sort of collecting old paperbacks and comics and that kind of thing, had quite a large collection of stuff. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just do that. I'll just sell, buy and trade. <laughs> and I had that idea, you know, that, that was sort of a lively idea for about two weeks, I think. So, but generally, yeah, look, at you know, I think anyone that, that does this and maybe... Uh, you know, as people that whose careers aren't the type of careers that just immediately are successful 
and they they kind of you know there's obviously no other other thing that you look at you have to you have to sort of be open to you know looking at other things from time to time how would you describe yourself now as a musician are you like what is your relationship to the guitar now say compared to 40 years ago when you were writing these tracks um how different are you i think um I think I'm sort of having having done this project where I've actually had to really sort of forensically go through this old material and the way that I used to play. Um, it's been been quite educational. I've learnt things from myself and the way that I played that I kind of kind of dropped along the way, just as you do, you know, because you develop in a certain way and you want to change what you play. Um, I, I think possibly, uh, possibly I'm a bit better. Um, I think I can sort of do what I did then and I can do things now that I couldn't do then. So I guess that's better. I'm not a, not a you know, um, a clear cut, sort of believer in the idea of a sort of a linear progression. I think you can kind of move around, you know, sideways and backwards, and it can all have a certain strength about it. Um, I'm also not a necessarily, I don't believe that uh, uh, when... Um, you sort of get better that it necessarily becomes more complicated or something. I mean, sometimes there's a there's something about the simplicity of, of what you do in a more naive state that, you know, is good to remind yourself of occasionally. How do you challenge yourself artistically? Do you have projects in mind or do you have shorter term sort of visions of what you're after? I tend to need to have a have a, a you know, a concept, I suppose, and then I, I work towards realising that. I tend to, I think I've always been like this, that I need to, I can have a lot of ideas, a lot of bits and pieces, but they won't necessarily be completed until there's something specifically to complete them for. I don't often sit around and just, you know, complete a song unless I need to. I'll, I'll do two thirds of it or three quarters of it and then put it aside until I know what I'm going to do with it. Looking at these songs, do you think it's a pity that, first of all, I think it's great that they're out there now and I love the record. I, I think it's just fantastic. It's one of my absolute favorites mm. of the year. Um, do you think it's a pity that the Saints didn't take a crack at these songs? Because that might have been interesting. Oh, look, I yes and no. I mean, I, I you know, in, in some ways, in a different sort of world, I think it's a pity that the, the Saints split up. Um, but they did, and and they didn't record these songs. So <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> it it is what it is. You know, um, when I look, I, I mean, it, it, it it's it's a question that sort of I've been asked before but I mean when when you look at what what was going on in the Saints 
world at that stage. I mean, the band had formed in 1973, but from 1976, when we started recording, uh, through to 1978, the end of when we split up, uh, we did three albums in that time, and you know, it's like in, in 18 months, two years or something. And I'm, I'm not really sure whether we could have done any more within that time frame because we were also touring a bit. And uh, um, yeah, but the band would, <clears throat> pardon me, have had to have stayed together or otherwise started recording a lot earlier than we did for, for any of that to have happened. And it's almost impossible to write when you're on the road, isn't it? Uh, it is when you're sharing rooms, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I actually quite quite like doing it these days because I tend, tend not to share rooms. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I used to say that. I used to sort of maintain really strongly that if I'm touring, I'm not going to be writing. And because I think I felt so strongly about that, I've kind of challenged that. And I actually do write on, on the road sometimes. Sometimes it's good to um, have long sound checks too, uh, especially if you're um, doing solo shows because uh, that can actually kind of um, open up a, a sort of a, a flow of ideas. You know, my California, San Francisco perspective has always been that there is a real brotherhood among Australian bands. Um, it just seems a lot more um, – the Confederacy seems stronger than it does for bands from the States. When you – supposing that's true, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but when you went to London, did you feel kind of alone? Did you feel like that was sort of a, a fish-out-of-water kind of an experience for you? We didn't really feel part of any any sort of uh, sort of scene much in Australia in those days. The Saints were sort of fish out of water here. There wasn't there wasn't really a scene. Um, so when we went to the UK, I think the main thing that I initially felt was sort of a slight disappointment that. Um, I suppose, you know, to put it simply, just that we weren't greeted more warmly with open arms, but also that the industry was bigger, it was more established, but, and I mean, it was where, you know, the music uh, scenes were sort of generated out of either London or New York or <coughs> possibly LA or something, but in a lot of ways, there were a lot of overlaps with the industry that I'd seen in Australia, and I wasn't all that taken with. So I was, it was a slight, slight disappointment. I think I expected, I expected more. Um, people didn't really seem that different, and I, I, I mean, you know, I, I thought Brisbane was sort of Hicksville, and yet. It wasn't that different. Was it also the bands that were being embraced at the time in the UK? Were you sort of like, I don't know what that's all about. Did, were you surprised by certain acts being sort of, you know, 
Uh, no, not 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 so much. I think I think part of the part of the thing was that there was a push to kind of shoehorn us in with the the UK punk scene, which uh, I, I think I was sort of very ambivalent about, quite resistant to, because we'd been doing this what we'd been doing for quite a while, and you know it wasn't something that was being done casually it wasn't a sort of oh we're doing this because you know we're going to become successful or we're doing this because it's going to make us popular with the girls or something it was sort of there was quite a strong sort of artistic drive behind it to then go over to London where I, I genuinely thought well we could just, we'll just be able to do whatever we like and people will love us because they'll be so <laughs> so so progressive in their outlook that they will just <laughs> embrace us. But it wasn't wasn't really the case, and it was sort of there was pressure on us to kind of start to sort of conform a little bit to something that the marketing department could push. And so we kind of rejected that, you know, and tried to. But at the same time, I, you know, our world experience wasn't that great, and we also didn't have management that could kind of help through, uh, uh, you know, what, what could be sort of a difficult sort of diplomatic uh, procedure with the record company and the press and that sort of thing. Also, in those days, <clears throat> the um, British press in particular was incredibly parochial. And so the fact that we were Australian, I mean, there, I don't think we ever had more than, you know, maybe a couple of articles where they weren't sort of either jokes about kangaroos or Barry McKenzie, who there was, you probably won't know that character. Yeah. Sort of, oh, you, if you do, well, you know, that was that whole Barry McKenzie image of the Australian in London. And um, so we, we, we got a lot of that. And it was just like, you know, you've got to be kidding kind of thing. So anyway... Yeah, it was it was a it was a strange time. That said, I I, I loved living in London. I, I you know it was a, it was a it was an eye opener in terms of finding records and you know just just a, a different sort of you just had access to everything suddenly. Whereas in small town Brisbane, that was sort of you know Australia's a very especially in those days places were very far apart from each other. And traveling wasn't, you wouldn't fly very much. You know, you'd be driving, which would always be a day's drive between cities kind of thing. So to so be living in London and have, have just hands-on access to music, shows, uh, theater, the cinema, it, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun.
my long-standing theory about Australian bands having a brotherhood seems to be a little wrong. <laughs> so, I... <laughs> Look, I think I think it developed after us a bit. Ah. I think I think that I think that possibly by the eighties there were. I think there, there was sort of a. I, I I wouldn't say that the bands were sort of less competitive, but I think there were in in scenes started to develop and 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 you know I, I think bands were sort of a bit supportive of each other to a certain extent you know i mean <clears throat> I, I i couldn't put myself forward as a spokesperson for this because i, I don't know it myself <laughs> <laughs> when you were in london did you see any bands that just knocked you out and you went, uh-oh, we better get better than these guys? Like, were you, first of all, were you competitive? And second of all, who knocked you out that you saw? I think I was always really competitive. I always wanted to sort of, you know, be, be better than anybody that I saw around. Um, uh, what, what really impressed me? Um, Oddly enough, the, the, my, my, I, I saw the, the Rover saxophone court. I, I saw some odd things that kind of, you know, there was no way that we were in competition with. They were just different, uh, so different that, you know, I think that's more what I was looking at, uh, looking for. Um, what did I see over there that I really liked? I, I saw that. It must have been 1978 or something. I saw the David Johansson band. And I really like that. But I was disappointed that he repeated his his jokes in between songs from show to show uh. to the extent that he did. Um, so that was sort of, you know, I, I, I didn't think people actually did that kind of thing unless they were, you know, just cabaret acts or something. But... Um, uh, I don't know. We were we were we were sort of busy. It was it wasn't like I was sort of going out trying to. Yeah, I I, I don't remember. I, it, it sounds sounds strange, but I don't I don't remember the things that I remember liking. I'd never felt any sort of competition with. It was sort of just uh, this is so different to what I'm doing, and I'd like to keep it that way, sort of thing. I didn't think there was anybody really doing what the Saints were doing. I mean we. We did uh, we did our first show <clears throat> in London, opening for the Talking Heads and Ramones, uh, which was sort of interesting, and that gave us sort of like our first insight into the uh, machinations of, of the music industry. Um, most of the times when we played with bands, I didn't particularly like it. I was actually quite happy to sort of give up the whole notion of playing live for a period of time. I like playing live more now than I think I did then. Um, if I had have been able to, I would have taken the band off the road and just moved into the studio and just recorded. Why was that? Uh, it was new to me. It was sort of something that we had some control over. The band wasn't particularly big. I mean, there's nothing sort of vaguely realistic about this uh, fantasy that I had. It, it, the band wasn't big enough to be playing in venues 
that had good production. So that was frustrating. Um, so the notion of actually retiring from live performance the way the Beatles did and go just, you know, set up in the studio was totally unrealistic because it's, it's what I uh, thought would be a good thing to do. Did you always think of yourself as a craftsman? Um, I, I have a lot of regard for craftsmen. I, 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 I don't know if I sort of think of myself in that way. I think I'm sort of a bit more, a bit more all over the place. So I'll call myself artistic. <laughs> that's a that's a safer bet, probably. Um, by the yeah. way, was it was the plan to always just be in London temporarily? Did you always know you were going to be leaving? No, no, no. no. Every every step of the way was sort of just see what happens. You know, I don't think that there was a, a sort of a, a long term plan. At that stage, I mean, when you're 19 or 20, a couple of years in the future is well, it was for me. Some people have got an ability to plan ahead to their retirement. I never, never had that. So, when, when we got over there, it was just basically, well, let's see how it goes. You know, um, I mean, in when we recorded I'm Stranded in the middle of 1976, uh, I had no idea idea that we would be in London a year later recording our second album sort of thing. You know, I always liked, Bailey was always one of my favorite front men because he was one of those guys that he didn't do much. He would just sort of stand there and the way he stood there suggested uh, so much more than what everybody else was trying so hard to project. And I liked that sort of surly stance um, that he had. I, I Anyway, I just and that's not really even a, a question. I, I just it was a comment that I, I always thought that he was a very underrated frontman. Yeah, I think I think he he was sort of one of the at his best. He was he was sort of he was up there with just about anybody. I think. Yeah, he 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 could do. He was a real minimalist in in just like a flick of the wrist. Uh, was so more sometimes, powerful. yeah. I mean, he 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 became that more as we got like the the wilder Bailey. You would have had to have been in in Brisbane and and see seen the live shows that we did here. When when we recorded the first album, that was kind of the the end of chapter one in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of people sort of see that as the beginning of the story, but it was actually the end of the, the Brisbane era. There were some wild shows that we did, you know, like small audiences in community halls and parties and that sort of thing. That's that's all we got. We never actually got booked to play in clubs. Um, so yeah, but that but by the time we by the time we sort of <clears throat> moved into state and then became an international act, um, it sort of changed, yeah, and, and, and Chris sort of uh, became a yeah, very, very sort of minimal type performer. But then, you know, there was a lot sort of going on around him. So it was sort of in a way he kind of uh, visually sort of centered it a little bit. Was that a decision you think that, that he had consciously made or it just he just sort of morphed into that persona? I'm not sure. I mean, he ten, tends to, you know, things that... Uh, at the time looked like they were set in stone, were only around for a you know, couple of months really, just uh, 
I'm, I'm not, not sure. It, it would have been a conscious decision not, not to become a, a sort of, uh, you know, a dancing sort of showman kind of thing. Right, which was punk rock, and it's in, in the decision itself is very punk rock. I guess so. I mean, you, you know, it. I, I think the the most important thing to remember about the band was that we were, in those days, it was very. We we were kind of very jealously guarding our little bit of turf, you know. The, no one in the band wanted to be like anybody else, and we didn't really. In a lot of ways, I mean, <clears throat> you can, you know. You're going back to your question earlier about the scenes and the sort of camaraderie. I mean, the Saints weren't a particularly outreaching sort of group of people. You know, we were fairly insular in 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 the early days, and and probably at our best. I mean, it probably also would have uh, done us a lot more good had we been a little more sociable. <laughs> um. How much did you leave behind for this record when you were picking through the, you know, the sketches and the and the fragments? How much of it did you actually not not put on the record? Of the time period that this covers, which is sixty nine to seventy nine, is probably another album. Oh wow! Um, it's whether whether we'll get around to that is another question. Um, <laughs> But yeah, what what it has done is kind of made me look through a whole lot. I mean, I've got probably more unrecorded material. I probably don't ever need to write anything <laughs> again in a lot of ways, and and still keep a you know a string of records sort of coming out over the next few years. But whether that happens, who knows? I mean, this this whole process, sort of true to the way the original saints operated was just a you know each month at a time kind of thing when when we started uh this process which was a year ago when uh i'd I'd been booked to play a sort of a commemorative uh 40th anniversary string of shows for the saints material I thought it'd be good to introduce a couple of these songs. Uh, one to stop it just being a straight out sort of nostalgic, you know, victory lap kind of series of shows, but also to, there's a lot of people that kind of have followed the band and what I've done, you know, for decades. And so they haven't heard this stuff. And I, I thought, you know, if they've, they really love those early records. I'll play them this stuff, see how they go. And the response was really great. So as the tour progressed, we just started adding more of them. By the time we finished, we had the whole album sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I, it wasn't as if I sort of went in at the beginning of uh, whenever that was. I think there was a over maybe it's September last year. Um, it wasn't a plan to to do the album. That kind of developed as the tour went on. Because I wasn't at any stage thinking I have to kind of hammer people with. So you know, if if people just 
if their response was, oh, well, you know, that wasn't recorded then because, you know, anyone can hear why, it's just not up to scratch, then, you know, I, I would have just lived with that and it would have been tucked away again. Um, so whether, whether we do another one, who knows? So in terms of your the projects that you have lined up, do you just sort of you just that decision doesn't get made until you make the decision? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a number of different ways that the, this paints with the exclamation mark can go, um, and I haven't quite decided what that should be. You know, it may it may not even it may not even go much beyond these shows that we're doing and. For the next six months and you know and then the record's out and that's that may well be it um i i, I just it's not something that we can uh kind of plan that far ahead with are you as critical in your artistic process are you as critical now as you've ever been or are you in other words i'm trying to ask is how hard on yourself are you when you're in the creative uh mode uh Probably uh, punishingly so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, having said that, I was very gentle on myself with the with the appraisal of of what to include on this. You know, that these songs, I wouldn't necessarily judge these old songs in the way that I would new ones. But by the time. To, by the time we were sort of playing them live, they had to all stand up to being played amongst songs from that were recorded and released on the first Three Saints albums. And so they, you know, they had they proved themselves live, sort of thing. So, um, which which is a, a, you know the best way to do this sort of music. Uh, I think any rock and roll, you've got to, you know if it can be played live and be done convincingly then it's probably good enough to record um as an overall kind of approach to how hard i am on my writing um in, in some ways i'm probably not the best person to ask that um i i will sometimes go into a, a state of writing where I think the, the, the less constraints and restrictions on what I do, the better and purer the artistic vision will be. And then other times I sort of think, no, that is just really delusional and you are so much better off just, you know, being really, really type of it it varies but i think um yeah i i, I, I find it hard to, hard to be really have a, have a really straightforward answer to that question yeah it's tough when i when i'm writing and i write a sentence that i know isn't good uh i there's about 30 seconds where i just hate myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I i think i think i've, I've moved beyond beyond that I, <laughs> good, I, think I, kind of, I don't i don't sort of agonize over that so much but the i think possibly what um what i have noticed is that the drive 
to record and release films has diminished greatly over the years. I don't, I don't release anywhere near the amount of music that I did uh, 10, 20 years ago. I'm not sure what that indicates. That's interesting. I, I had a theory that, tell me if I'm insane, Ed, I had this theory that, you know how Dylan put like all those records out? Like he, like he put like 15 records out in six years or whatever it was. Um, Mm. I think that being prolific, I'm, you know, I'm 48 and I feel I can say this. Um, I think being as prolific as, uh, in those early days, I feel like it's connected to libido somehow. I feel like there's something about that charge and releasing material. I feel it's connected to that. I don't know what the connection is, but I think it has something to do with it. It could well be. I mean, yeah, you just, you just basically, yeah, you want to procreate, I guess, but, um, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Maybe maybe that's the case. Maybe there's also just a a feeling that it's all meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's not the cheeriest way to look at it, but I told I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you were saying the same. Yeah, you, you want you want cheery? You've come to the wrong. Place. Yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> Now, you said that the Saints were very insular, kind of like loners, kind of by themselves in the game, but you seem like a very steady, nice guy. Do you have the same friends that you've had, uh, you know, whether they're in the business or not? Do, have you had the same friends in your life for 40 years? Or, are you one of those guys? Some, some people, yeah. Um, no, I, 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 actually, one of the interesting things I found was that um, a lot of people that – Sort of new in the very early days, you have kind of just lose complete contact with. So I mean, my my immediate family has been together for a long time. Uh, I've been married for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I'm probably not not the world's most sociable person. But yeah, they, you know, there are, there are people that I'm still friends with that I knew 40 years ago. Are you okay with Chris? Do you guys I don't have a good relationship still, or is it just one of those things that kind of fades away? I, 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 I definitely wouldn't describe it as a good relationship. Uh. <laughs> most, most emphatically, not, not a good relationship. Um, I, can, I can be, I think, fairly objective, and you know, I, I really like what we did together back in those days, but there are a lot of things that happened in the uh, years after that kind of soured things beyond repair really which is which is kind of a shame because you know we were friends when we were I don't know, 13 or 14 or something yeah well he seems like an intense guy um but nevertheless uh well you know Ed, a treat to talk to you uh I, i'm a real a real uh, admirer of uh of all you've done and it's just so cool to to have a conversation with you about and this record is just fantastic i love it so much well thank you thank you and um and uh yeah, yeah thanks i mean what else can i say i i i'm i'm happy with it you know it, it it's it's a strange sort of uh time shifting kind of experience in a way um brought back into focus it's kind of blended the decades everything's kind of become a sort of like a you know, 
bit of a pile up against a, a brick wall where you kind of just or a glass studio window where you kind of get everything kind of squashed up right against the glass all in one go. That's what this record is in some ways. But um, I think it also, <clears throat> well, I, I just the response from people that weren't around in those days that have responded well to the record, I think is sort of gratifying. I think it works in itself, regardless of if, whether you know the, the history or even interested in the history of it, to see it as a, you know, an album of songs, I think it kind of works, which is nice. Well, I couldn't agree more. Ed, congratulations on the record and uh, really great talking to you. An absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, pal. Okay, see you again. Bye. Take care. There you go, the mighty Ed Cooper. For more information, go to Ed Cooper slash The Ain'ts on Facebook or hit Ed on Twitter at Ed Cooper Music. As for our show, we're now on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. You can find me at alexgreenonline.com. And if you have someone in mind you'd like me to interview, drop me a line, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. So let's finish the show with a song from the Ain'ts album. This is called Red Aces. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. <laughs>